welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the co- podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear page by page. This is page 343. Show me one record of an emir being employed by a court. Find me one church document that shows an emir presiding over a case. I cross my arms in front of my chest belligerently. Go on, I'll wait. Willem ignored the book. Maybe there weren't as many emir as people assume. Perhaps there were only a few of them, and their reputation grew out of their control. He gave me a pointed look. You should understand how that works. No, I said. This is a significant absence. Sometimes finding nothing can be finding something. You're starting to sound like Elodin, Willem said. I frowned at him, but decided not to rise to the bait. No, listen for a minute. Why would there be so little factual information about the emir? There are only three possibilities. I held up fingers to mark them off. One, nothing was written down. I think we can safely discard that. They were too important to be so entirely neglected by historians, clerks, and the obsessive documentation of the church. I tucked that finger away. Two, by an odd chance, copies of the book that do have this information have simply never made their way here to the archives. But that's ridiculous. It's impossible to think that over all the years, nothing on the subject has ended up in the largest library in the world. I folded down the second finger. Three, I pointed with the remaining finger. Someone has removed this information, altered it, or destroyed it. Willem frowned. Who would do that? Who indeed, I said. Who would benefit most from the destruction of the information of the emir? I hesitated, letting the tension build. Who else but the emir themselves? I had expected him to dismiss my idea, but he didn't. An interesting thought, Willem said. But why assume the emir are behind it? It is much more sensible to think the church itself is responsible. Certainly the Tellens would like nothing better than to quietly erase the emir's atrocities. True, I admitted, but the church isn't very strong here in the Commonwealth, and these books come from all over the world. A Shaldish historian wouldn't have any compunctions about writing a history of the emir. A Shaldish historian would have very little interest in writing the history of a heretic branch of a pagan church, Willem pointed out. Besides, how could a discredited handful of emir do something the church itself could not achieve? I leaned forward. I think the emir are far older than the Talon church, I said. During the time of the Aturan Empire, a great deal of their public end of pages. I'm Nick. I'm I'm Jeremy. So there's some conversation in the uh, chat of the live stream here about who's doing the pruning. Is it Lauren? Is it Willem? Uh, And that made me think, and then someone said it may be a handful of scribs recruited by the emir. That made me think that like the more people you bring in on a conspiracy, the bigger the chance your conspiracy fails. And so if you are a person in a position of power, uh, or rather if you're a person uh, sent to infiltrate the archives and remove all references to a single subject in it. Um, 
that's a, a risky thing to be doing. If you're not in a position of power, you probably won't be able to to work your will. Uh, so you probably need to be in a position of power. You need to be uh, either a high-level scriv uh, or the master archivist. Now, you can't just issue an order to your scrivs to say, bring me any information about the emir, because then you're asking to be discovered. You're asking for someone to start asking questions. You also can't really afford to uh, recruit scribs because they're just like grad students. You can't trust these people. So what do you do? You make a system of organizing information where you ensure that all references to the things you want are shelved in a certain place, and then you burn those shelves. You arrange for those shelves to be burned. So even if Lauren isn't the guy who is responsible for this, uh, there is a long history of uh, high-level scrivs and uh, loyalist scrivs uh, who are still stuck on a previous way of shelving things um, are l- intentionally losing, misshelving, and then destroying large swaths of information. What better way to cover for pruning information from the archives than the long history of so-called like wars between the different uh, master archivists and their systems of organizing information? I think this whole thing has been a cover for uh, at least one, maybe more. Maybe there's a whole history of Amir inside the archives, uh, constantly pruning and and losing this information. I can definitely get on board with the idea that the scrivs doing the different systems might be purposefully losing things in it or somehow helping that happen. I don't know about the burning of things because I feel like that wasn't... Yeah. The book, like, they never say they never go so far as to say that there are like scribs burning books, but they definitely like lose like misshelve things or shelve things in the wrong place or lose them. And I can definitely see if I'm in a mirror, I can definitely see, okay, we should always try to have at least one agent in the archives at the university to keep up. Because the other thing is like the archives is so vast that there must be lots and lots of books that would have compromising information about the Amir in them. So it's got to be an ongoing project of making sure those stay hidden. So I would wager that not every master archivist has been on the side of the Amir and keeping them secret, but sure, some of them have been, and that's where this war, that might be one reason for this ongoing conflict in the archives. Uh, so the the shelves of books weren't burned, but the ledgers were burned. The ledgers that say where things were, that's right. been explicit. And then that could be a cover for getting the books out. And there's also good evidence that there is a trade in black market books being shipped out of the archives because uh, Devi is able to get her hands on some books, I think, through the hands of uh, uh, Ambrose's cronies. I think that's sort of the connection there. But there's well, not it- a ton of evidence supporting that. Is there any evidence that she's getting all of those books from the archives? Uh, I think it's extremely likely. Wouldn't it be interesting if a book containing information about the Amir ended up in Devi's private library and then Quoth at some point borrowed it? Mm. Well, what if that's what Devi's after? Wait, why, why would, would Devi want to be after the Amir? Why indeed? Why would Denna I... want to be after the Chandrian? I think it's more likely that Devi will figure out, like, I think Jordan is onto something here. What if Devi figures out that what Quoth wants is information about the Emir, and she procures a book that he desperately wants, and then says, okay, Quoth, now you got to give me what I want, if you want this book. I, I do think that's where it's leading. I think that it's being uh, set up, like, all the... 
what's the all the ducks are being arranged in a row so that Quoth will have to make the choice. Like he's already been offered like you know money, right? Uh, to give up his way into the archives and therefore Auri. But there's only one or two things he could possibly want more. Like that would make him uh, possibly give up Auri, and that would be information about the Chandrian or the Amir, right? So I think that's kind of where it's going. And that's just a great way to generate conflict in a narrative. Put two things that give a character two desires and then put those desires in conflict and find out which one they want more and how, what they're willing to give up to get it. This page, if we can go back to the page, uh, <laughs> is Quoth uh, doing crackpot theorizing, which yeah. I am extremely pleased by. <laughs> but unlike some of the crackpot theories that have come up on our show, I think that Quoth's reasoning is really sound and the evidence seems pretty clear to me. And there's a moment where Willem says, you're starting to sound like Elodin. And Quoth takes that as like an insult. But I actually think that Willem is onto something here because Quoth is starting to see the forest for the trees, right? He is he's almost in like a state of flow when he uh when he starts thinking about this stuff. And I think he is he is kind of sinking into this like, yeah, state of flow that is maybe similar to the mindset you need when you're naming. And well, uh if we can get even that. less if we can be even, I guess, uh even more like realistic about it Elodin, sure Elodin is like into the state of flow of naming but Elodin is also disillusioned with the university so this might be part of it Elodin might understand the politics and the true nature of power and why people fight to become the masters of the university and that may also be part of why he is the way he is because he has no time for the pomp and ceremony of the university as it stands because maybe he knows that it's corrupt well but but Willem says that Quoth starts to sound like Elodin when Quoth says something that sounds kind of vaguely profound. Finding some, sometimes finding nothing can be finding something. So I think Willem is referring to Elodin's like weird, wise old mumbo jumbo stuff, not his political disillusionment. Jordana, this is where you jump in and say, can't both be true? Well, okay. So I like the idea that Foth is in a state of flow and being more Elodin-y and, and that's, he, I like that theory. I like that idea. But at the same time, Quoth's attitude on this page speaks very differently from that. Like Quoth is being an asshat because <laughs> he's, he's talking to Willem and he's all busy trying to make this argument. And I think, I think Willem is entertaining it in a pretty chill manner. And he, puts down the book and says like, Oh, like find this information. Go ahead. I'll wait. No one who's ever said, go ahead. I'll wait is not being a dick. Like that's a, that's a, that's a mean thing to say. You could just wait. You can, you can show that you don't need to say it. Like he's, he has but, so much attitude, <laughs> but he, I, I mean, I think his attitude is correct. He's right about something. And his friend is poo pooing him. I think like any friends having an argument, uh, they're just getting more heated and frustrated with one another at the obstinacy of the friend in light of things that are obviously objectively true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I'm just saying that that attitude does not meld well with the elodin attitude of being in a state of flow. I just don't think that both of those attitudes can coexist at the exact same time. Right. 
But, like, I think that Will's comment about Quoth sounding like Elodin is specifically referring to the thing he says right before that and nothing else on the page. Fine. Reasonable. But also, Elodin is a dick all the time. That's it. Okay. Fine. But he's only a dick because he's cryptic. He's not, like, giving Quoth attitude. know about that he tells like he's to messing with it. him but i don't think it's the same he tells close to stop grabbing at his tits that's not exactly being cryptic sure but i also think that that's like that's one example in many and it's one i already have problems with for different reasons so all right well we don't have to dredge all that up again is there anything else we want to talk about on this page what STI do you risk getting when you have sex with a lich? What? Cryptic. <laughs> oh, no, that was actually very funny. God damn it. <laughs> well, you know what? You'll be, you won't get cryptic if you use a prophylactory. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Okay, we have we do have a letter today. Uh, This is from Patrick, not Rothfuss, who writes on the Arrow Catch Commission. Uh, This episode completes the Arrow Catch sequence for the book and page three twenty five. Over the chapter, you have debated if Quoth earns some kind of commission on each Arrow Catch sold or only the ones he makes. It's been driving me a little crazy, so I figured I would do what I do and write in to correct you. When Quoth returns to the university, he finds Basil in Stocks, who explains to him that the fishery gets 30% and the owner of the schema gets 10. The maker gets the remaining 60%. Quoth does not know this because all the things he normally makes, like twice tough glass and sympathy lamps, are owned by the fishery, which means they do keep the whole 40%. The way he explains it sounds like ye old public domain. Quoth discovers that he has over 22 talents waiting for him. Another thing you discussed is that 40% seems like a lot for the stocks to take. I do not think it is that bad when you consider that the fishery provides training, tools, and workplace. In Quoth's case, he has a private workspace for a few span. Modern art galleries, even small ones, generally take at least 40% of each sale, and many take 50 or 60%. Thanks for all your work on the podcast. I look forward to listening every day. Signed, Patrick, not Rothfuss. I see what you're saying, Patrick, and thank you for writing in to correct us. But I'm going to point out that uh, that's just rent-seeking. And uh, my my personal outlook on politics and economics would say that, like, well, the gallery's not providing anything. They just happen to own land and a building on the land where the artist must put their their paintings in order to be sold. And there's no reason for that arrangement to exist. And likewise, there is no reason except for the force of tradition and capital that the university owns the building the materials the tools the workspaces and owns them in private and can extract rent for people who need to use them i would also argue that the training is already covered cost-wise by his tuition exactly that's what he's paying tuition for also also as a person who has like put things in galleries yes it's very common for a gallery to charge the 60 percent fee is it smart for an artist to go to that gallery? No, most of the time not. You'll never make the right amount of money back. Like good galleries are community galleries that do not charge that fee or at least not as exorbitant well, one. My question, and I think the argument that somebody invested in this 
shall we say, uh, system would make is where else would you go as an artist to be able to make these sales? I think the argument would probably be if you, you don't come to a gallery which has the connections and the clout to put you in touch with buyers, you wouldn't be able to make those sales. And therefore we are charging you know, a finder's fee in addition to the fee of like the space. I'm not saying I agree with it because I don't, but uh, I think that's the rationale here. Mm-hmm. And Jordana, what would you, as someone who knows the the art world a little bit better, what's the alternative if you want to sell a piece to hanging in a gallery? The I'd say the best alternative if you if you want to actually hang in a gallery but you don't want to pay those fees is to be part of a group or a guild of multiple artists and then you can rent out a space it can be an existing gallery galleries do rent their spaces you could rent out a space that is not a gallery and you could have gallery shows and that way you still get the benefit of lots of people coming to those shows because they're they might be coming for a different artist but then they'll see your work and you don't pay those crazy gallery fees you would pay a membership fee but normally membership fees because these things are run and started by artists the membership fees are not that bad it's like 75 bucks for a whole year or something like that you might pay a little extra if they're having trouble paying the rent for the building that they're in like if people want to show in galleries being part of a guild or a group is the best way to do it if you don't want to be on a gallery, there's like a million different ways to show your art on the internet that I'm not going to But what if you want to sell? Like, let's let's assume that this is a Akefoth situation. Let's let's think like, what's the alternative for an artificer? If we can extend the metaphor to an artist. Jeremy's Jeremy? putting his hand up. Well, Jordana, I think, has already answered this because what else can you call a guild of workers who band together to bargain for better conditions? <laughs> Yeah, the artificers oh. need a union. And if the artificers oh. all had an ownership stake in the artificery, which is what you call a cooperative business or a co- a workers co-op, then they could decide, you know, because Quoth has no say in how much his commission is versus how much he tithes to the university. But if all the artificers together, like, got to, like, decide that for themselves, then it would be a much more fair business model. And, like, yeah, maybe there is some logic to saying well, we need to like pay for like the upkeep of the building and the equipment and all that. But there's no reason why the artificers couldn't all decide that democratically based on what seems fair to them. Same thing with the artist guild. So I think we've found our answer. <laughs> As usual. <laughs> well, uh, listeners, take it to heart. Uh, you have power when you stand together and only that way will we be able to make any significant structural change and seize the means of production. And by seize, I, of course, mean redistribute because no one is advocating for any kind of violent overthrow on this show. Certainly not, parody redacted. Uh... <laughs> no, wait, no, not redacted because we're literally not advocating. Abort, <laughs> abort this whole bit. <laughs> well... You can find our prophylactories and destroy them on tomorrow's page. <laughs> um, the wind. wind.